long time, and that is in Genesis chapter 2. So go there in your Bible this morning, and um, we're going to take a look here at, at God's special creation, and take a, take a closer look at what God did to prepare the world and to, to bring man into it to live for God's glory. Let's open with a word of prayer as we prepare to look into God's Word. Father in heaven, Lord, I do ask you to speak to our hearts. God, it's a serious thing here to open up your word. And we are asking you to speak to us through it. Lord, it is nowhere else that we find the truth that we need. God, you have given us your word. We confess that we are prone to taking it for granted. So now, Lord, we pray that your spirit would speak to us through it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read a Genesis chapter 2, verse number 4. And um, read down here through uh, into the 20s. We'll see where we stop this morning. Moses, the author of Genesis, the the author of the first five books of the Bible, the author of the Pentateuch, he writes these things. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It was one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and Onkstone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then back to the man, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now to the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into woman and brought her to the man. Now Genesis chapter 2 is a 
re- more specific look at, at the special work that God did when He made mankind. We've already looked at Genesis chapter 1. We spent three weeks talking about that. I so appreciate what Pastor George had to say to us last week about the, the scientific evidence that God created the heavens and the earth. And I, I, val- I valued that greatly. It was, it was excellent to hear. But now what happens here when we go into Genesis chapter 2 is, is there is somewhat of a change. And what is occurring is we are now having the special creation of God making humans, God making man and woman, God making mankind, and God now is, is sort of honing in his, the detail about what He did. This is a special creation that we're going to see. And the thing that strikes me as I study through Genesis chapter 2, and I want you to catch this today, is the beauty of what God has done. The beautiful thing that the Lord did when He made all that there is, including us. My ride to work this morning, my ride to the office this morning was beautiful. It was beautiful. Now let me tell you what was so beautiful about it. I walked outside early this morning. There was heavy cloud, okay? And, and you could hardly see to the end of the road. I mean, it just so much cloud. Just last night, the sun was beautiful, and this morning, covered with clouds. See, all this beauty, and I was just struck by the power of God, that He made all of this and, 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 and produced everything that there is here that, that we have the advantage of on this earth. And, and I continued down my road, and, and across my driveway, three rabbits ran this morning. I was like, man, that is beautiful. And then I, I crossed on to, to Shape Charge Lane, I'm riding down the road, and Shape Charge Road that is, and, and two squirrels out in the middle of the road playing. And I just kept riding along, I got a big smile on my face, I'm like, man, this is so beautiful. And there on the radio is, is playing some great music this morning. What's that song, Hawk Nelson? I can't remember the name of it, but it just was this just wonderful song about the goodness of God and how He has blessed us. And I'm riding along listening to all of this and just just struck by the beautiful things that I'm hearing. And as I think about the music, there's a guy that comes on, he's got this real deep voice, I know his name, and you know, he speaks real, real calmly, and he's, he's reading God's Word. I was just moved by the, by the sound of what I heard. I get out of my Jeep here at the office, and I open up the door, and I step out, and I instantly, so my ears are just filled with the songs of birds. All around, they've woken up. Again, they've woken up that morning, and they're singing away. And then I get to maybe my favorite part. I reach in and I grab a bag that my wife had given me on the way out. Okay? Fresh baked scone. Cinnamon scone. And I'm like, I'm going to go in the office. I'm going to turn on the coffee pot. I'm going to make a cup of coffee. And I'm going to have a beautiful taste in my mouth. It was a great morning. It just was. It was beautiful. Beautiful. You know, God has made and provided a world that just blows our our every thought of limitation. I've got a book here, and and I recommend this book. It's called The Things of Earth, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts. I came across this book, and and I appreciate it reading. Let me just give you a sampling of what the author is challenging us to. He says this, Why did God make a world for His own glory in Christ and then fill it to the brim with pleasures? Now listen to what he says. Physical pleasures, sensible pleasures, emotional pleasures, relational pleasures. Why did God make a world full of good friends, sizzling bacon, the laughter of children, West Texas sunsets, Dr. Pepper? 
You like that, right? College football, marital love, and the warmth of warm socks. This is the tension we experience, he says. My aim is simple. I want you to work for your joy. Your joy in your family, your joy in your friends, your joy in your pancakes and your eggs and your steak and your potatoes and your chips and your salsa. Your joy in your camping trips and your workouts and your iPod playlist. Your joy in your Bible. Your joy in your worship service. Your joy in your quiet moments before you fall asleep. Your joy in your job. Your joy in your hobbies. Your joy in your daily routine. And then, and through all these things, I want to work with you for your joy in the living and personal God who gave you all these things and delivered you from sin and death through the work of His Son and Holy Spirit that you might enjoy Him and them and Him in them forever. Our God is good. And He has given us a freedom. I think I've got that verse for the screen possibly. God has given us a freedom that we have in Christ. Is it going to be up there? Click maybe? There it is. Now the Lord is Spirit. And God has done this awesome thing where the Spirit of the Lord is... There is freedom. And in the context, what this, what this shows us here in 2 Corinthians is now that we are in Christ, we are free. We are free now to enjoy the pleasures that God has provided us in Him. Because He's the Creator. Because He's the Maker and the Designer of you and everything there is. God has made us with a freedom now in Christ to worship Him through enjoying the pleasure of what He's given us. But I'll tell you something. If God's not the maker, if God's not the creator, then all we have is our desperate look, our desperate seeking out to find some selfish pleasure for me. And this is what the world offers us. The world offers a sort of sense of freedom. You can do anything you want to. Go ahead, you can do anything you want to. But Peter says that that kind of freedom is in reality bondage. Slavery. Listen, in Christ, God, and we're going to see it here, God has created a perfect world for us to enjoy Him. Now, it's been marred by sin, but God's not finished. He's going to recreate this. But the whole point of this is for us to enjoy our relationship with Him. And that is going to come through here in Genesis 2. Let's look at it now in a little more detail. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and earth. Now, this word generations is a very important word. It's where we get our word Genesis. And you will find it all through the book of Genesis. And what it means is, it means ancestry or history. So really what we have here is this is the history of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. I want you to see now we have a a special creation going on here. God is now going to... He's already told us in chapter 1 that He created the heavens and the earth in six days. And on the sixth day, God made all the animals and God made man. But what the Lord is doing here in Genesis chapter 2 is He's showing us that man is something special. Man is something special. And so now what God is going to do is He's going to show us the special effort, the special creation that has been done in creating man. 
And when you read through the, the, the account here, Genesis chapter 2, a few things strike you. Okay? For instance, read what it says. There are the, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now immediately, if you compare this with Genesis chapter 1, you'll see there is a difference. Look back at Genesis chapter 1, even at verse number 28. It says, and God blessed them. In verse number 26 of chapter 1, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. You will notice that in Genesis chapter 1, God is called God. G-O-D. And this is the Hebrew word Elohim. But in Genesis chapter 2, we now have God with a different name. Now God is called the Lord God. Notice there, Lord, in my my Bible, is all capitals. Capital L, capital R, capital D. Now this is what the writers are doing here, and the translators are doing, is they're telling us this is a special word. And it's the word Yahweh in Hebrew. And so what we have now is that in Genesis chapter 1, God is called Elohim. Elohim is is a very powerful word. It means might. It means strength. It means that God is the creator of everything. He is so powerful that He has made everything. But in Genesis chapter 2, we still have that word Elohim. God is called Elohim, okay? But He's called Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. Now that might not seem like a big deal to you, but it's important for you to realize, to see this. I want to prepare you for something. That you've got to understand what's going on here. Let me tell you about a friend of mine. I had a good friend who decided the Lord was leading him to go to seminary. And so he went to seminary. Okay? Just like many other people have done, myself included. And one of the very first classes that you will take in seminary is called an introduction to the Old Testament. And that sounds pretty easy, right? Intro. This is going to be easy. Yeah, I know who Jacob is and Joseph is. I know all these guys. I'm going to crush this class. Well, that's not what it means at all. Introduction, when you're talking about biblical studies, is a very technical term. And it means we're going to tear this sort of book apart, and we're going to understand who wrote it, how do we know they wrote it, and, and what language did they write it, and what was the set. It's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult course, Introduction to Old Testament. And you will find out immediately that in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2, there is an issue that people have been battling over for over a hundred years. And it's just the, simply the name of God. In Genesis chapter 1, we have God called Elohim. Let me just tell you about this word. It's often associated with this, just going through your Bible, you will find it associated with these words. Creator, powerful, the nations, jealousy, mercy, great, Awesome, knowledge, refuge, avenger, holy one, mighty, retribution, salvation, power. But then in Genesis chapter 2, God now identifies himself as Yahweh Elohim. Now there are those that get all upset about that. But I don't have a problem with that because I understand what Yahweh means. Do you remember when Moses was there and at the burning bush? And Moses said, I don't even know your name, God. I don't even know your name. And what did God tell him? What does our English Bible say? I am who? I am. And that is that word, Yahweh. And let me tell you about this word. I won't bore you with too much of this. I know I'm probably more excited about this than maybe some of you are. But Yahweh means, it's a a name for God. 
And what it represents is the covenant-keeping nature of God. It is the fact that God makes a promise, He keeps it. You don't have to worry about that. The Lord says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and you can believe it because He is the Yahweh God. He means what He says, and He will pay with His own life to keep His word. Let me tell you the words associated with Yahweh. Provider, healer, peace, sanctifier, shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23, 1. Yahweh is, is there. He's, he's close. And so what happened in the late 1800s now, in the early 1900s, people allowed this evolutionary thinking See, this is a warning. This is a warning about allowing man's ideas to trump God's. We let man's ideas trump God. We're in trouble. So about 1850 or so, this idea of evolution came into the scientific world, some of the scientific world. And over time, people were affected by this, even theologians. And theologians in the late 1800s, early 1900s, said, you know what? If animals evolved, if organisms evolved, if planets evolved, then maybe God evolved. Maybe the Word of God evolved. And what, what became a theory in the sort of highbrow thinkers of theological circles was that Moses didn't write the Old Testament, or the Pentateuch. Moses didn't write that. There's, there's many authors, and it evolved over time. And, and we have this now, but, but really, it was, it was over thousands of years, it evolved into what we have today. And they might say, well, why are you talking, what's, what's the point of talking about this? Because if you go into virtually any university setting today and take a religious studies course... You're going to be told this theory, even today, even though it's been debunked. It's called the Wellhausen theory, okay? That's a German name. And it's the idea that that the Bible is not inspired of God. But it has come to us, it has evolved for us through many different people and many different vehicles. It's evolved to have what we have today. It's called the Wellhausen theory. My friend who went off to seminary, Heard that for the first time. Dropped out of seminary. Said, we can't even trust that we even have the Bible. How do we know this is even real? This, they don't even know this is even real. And today, he's a believer, I guess. But honestly, Christ doesn't rule in his life. Listen, this is important. It is important for us to understand what God has said in his words. I'm a biblicist. So the Bible says it. So I would take God at His words. How do I handle Elohim and Yahweh Elohim? God is so mighty. And He is Elohim, the Creator, the Maker. But He is so close. He's so in our life that He is Yahweh Elohim. God is big beyond our imagination. Elohim. But He is close. He is close, Yahweh. It's like this. I come home some days when my children were little and they've been bad. 
Okay? And mom tells father that children were wrong. So father comes in the house and he says, son, daughter, back in the bedroom, i got to deal with this. And I am father at that time. But listen, just a few minutes later, I'm holding my child in my lap. And they look up at me and they say, Daddy, I love you. Now, if I tell you that story, you don't conclude that my kids have two dads. One named Father and one named Daddy, right? You know they're the same. We're just expressing their character in two different ways. That's what happens here in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1, we saw Elohim, the mighty God. In Genesis 2, we see Yahweh, the close God. This isn't two accounts of two different creations. That's not what this is. This is God now bringing in the attention on His special creation of man because He loves us. And He made us for relationship. Let's keep going through it. Verse number 5. When there was no bush of the field... what? I'm sorry, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. You see, I'm just, I'm, when you go through this, you're forced to be apologetic. You might say, wait a minute. I thought all the plants were created on day number three. And now this is same. There's no bush of the field was, was in the land and no small plant of the field. What's going on? Now we have man... And there's no, there's no plants. And we had, earlier in Genesis chapter 1, day 3 there were plants, and day 6 there were man. You understand the issue? But all you've got to do is understand a little bit of what's going on here. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. These are different words that are used in Genesis chapter 1. No bush of the field, and no small plant of the field. What these simply mean is this. There's no plants yet. These are, these are Hebrew words that mean a plant that must be cultivated. That's what this is. There is no bush of the field and no small plant of the field. What this means to say is, there, are, there are, aren't the special plants that have to have somebody care for the land, care for the plant. I mean, there's wooded areas, there's forest, but there's no tomato plant. You get that? Tomato plants generally require cultivation. I, I don't walk out in the forest behind my house and find a whole grove of tomato plants. They aren't there. Because that requires me, as the gardener, to care for the land. Day number three, God made general vegetation. And that's where the word that's used there in Genesis chapter 1. General vegetation, God made them. But now we have... Here, the Lord has not yet made the special plants that require two things. These special plants require a man or a woman to cultivate and regular hydration. No rain yet has fallen on the land. These things aren't needed yet. It's just general vegetation, but now God has a different plan. Verse number 6, a mist at this point was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth. And then, verse number 7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. I want you to see this special creation. Now, how can we take what God has said here? The Lord has been very, very clear. I don't know how we could be more clear what He did than what He said in verse number 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of what? Of dust. Not of 
evolved primates, not of an evolved form just short of human, but God took dust of the earth. Now don't think of dust as something that you just sort of brush off of a flat surface. This means the soil of the earth. That's what this means. God now is making special effort to demonstrate to us our nature. And God now takes the dirt from the ground and forms man. Now, nothing special yet. He did that with the beasts of the earth as well. But now something very special. It says that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. A living creature. Now, this is very important for us. And and, and it it again resounds the, the, the alarm that we are something special. We're not just animals, okay? God has done something special here that we need to be aware of. I mean, what is it that that makes us different than animals? Well, Genesis chapter 1, look back at verse numbers 26 and 27. They show us some of the differences that that are important for us to remember, okay? We know that that God has made us in His image, okay? that's, That's very important. But what does that mean? What does that mean that we're made in the image of God? Let me just tell you a few things. Let me suggest... A few. This is not an exhaustive list, but let me, let me suggest a few things that, that differentiate us from anything, any other creature because we're made in the image of God. First of all, we need to remember what this means about us is that, that we have a personality. Okay? God made us, when, we, when, when He breathed into us life, that means we have a personality. You're different than you, and you're different than you. Now, you can tell me, well, my dog has a personality. Really? Really? Your dog is, is, has learned through behavior modification what it is that brings it reward. That's why I can get my dog to go up on its hind legs and spin around, okay, because I'll give it a treat. That's why. Now, you don't have a personality because of that. You have a personality because you are made in the image of God. And so God has made you self-conscious. You, you can have independent thoughts and independent ideas, And things can matter to you. And you can experience love. And you can experience admiration. You can experience hate and anger. Not our cats. Not our dogs. There is a very, very distinct difference. And somehow this is creeping its way into our culture. You see it if you look for it. This this, this line of divine, this line of divine between Humans and animals is being erased. And it's not of God. Now, I love dogs. I love cats. And, and, and I, love all, I love pigs and cows. They're, you know, great to eat and all that kind of stuff, okay? But there is a difference. There's a difference. What else? What else? We can be creative. We can make things. We can appreciate things. My dog doesn't appreciate the fact that it, you know, can listen to fine music or, you know, walk out, look at a sun. That it, it doesn't excite the dog. We're relational. God has made us for relationship. Something special, verse number seven. Okay, then we go on. I think I'm put these up on the screen. We got special creation. And now we have this special preparation that's going to happen. And we're, and, and we're going to move along here, verse number eight. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. 
There he put the man whom he had formed. Can I just say this? And I won't have time to hit every single one of these. I want you to look for the things that demonstrate that this is an actual account. There are literal words here used. You know that there are all kinds of people under a Christian umbrella who try to tell us these are all, this is just figurative. This didn't really happen. This is just sort of a myth that you can believe. No. I want you to look for the things that demonstrate that God is using literal language. For instance, the garden is planted in the east. If you're just telling a mythological tale, some of these details aren't important. They're useless. This isn't a myth. This is a literal account of what God has done. So there in the garden of Eden in the east, he put the man whom he had formed, very literal, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was there in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God makes all these, these trees and he's created this beautiful place for, for Adam to be. We need to see the beauty of what is there and to appreciate what this is. And there in the middle of the garden are two special trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is part of the preparation that God is doing for man to be there. Now this tree of life must have been a miraculous tree, but really I don't think there's anything miraculous about it. It's just God had instowed in it a, a miraculous property. I think very likely this is just like any other tree, but God made this tree special. It's so special that even after the fall now, even after sin, if man eats from it, he lives forever. Something from this tree is going to cause man to live eternally if he eats from it. But then also God has placed a second special tree in preparing the garden, and that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you'd seen this tree, I have no reason to believe that it was ugly, twisted. Okay, it wasn't like this, oh, stay away from that tree. That's not what it was. Okay? Satan later on is going to say that it, that it looks very pleasing to the eye. But this tree, likewise, had a special trait. And this tree is sad for us in some ways. Because this tree represents man's choice to accept God's sovereignty or to rebel against God's sovereignty. And that is the only two choices that we have in life. To respond to the sovereignty of God by accepting the Lord and what He has said or rebelling. Now what this tree would offer is the knowledge of good and evil. It would take away man's innocence. When God made Adam, he is completely innocent. He's like a child. A child in an early age doesn't even know what is right or wrong. They just repeat the words that they hear. They just, they just do the things that they're, they're innocent. They don't know. But God places this tree there. And with it comes an understanding. The ability to rebel against God. This is the preparation. Verses 10 through 14, there are these rivers described. Theologians have tried for years to figure out what these rivers are. You're not going to find these rivers, not all four of them. You know why? Because a great big flood's going to come here pretty soon and wipe all this out. But the thing you need to see is the literal nature of it. The literal nature. God says there's a river here and there's a river there. Four rivers now come from this one. This is not a myth. This is, a, this is an account of what has happened. 
Verse number 15, the Lord God takes the man now. We're going to see a special mission here. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Literal Adam, notice, okay? Literal Adam, you are to work it and to keep it. Now, what's this mean? First of all, can I tell you this? I got bad news for you. Work is a good thing. I know you don't look forward to tomorrow morning getting up and going to work. But let me tell you, if you didn't have it, if you didn't have it, you become something you don't want to be. We need to work. God has made us. God has made us needing to invest our lives towards some responsibility. And God here says, I want you to work the garden. What this means is it literally means to cultivate. That's what it means. You are to prepare it for, for something, to, to, to go in and dig around and, and to serve the land is what it means. You're to serve the garden. So when God said to, to work it, God wants man to now dig around in the dirt and find this... I don't know if you can do this, the scientists. You'll just have to give me some freedom here. But find this hydrogen atom, okay? I don't know if that happens. But, you know, and figure out, you know, what can it do? And what happens when you put it with oxygen and, and, and understand the creation? This is working. This is working the land. It's understanding physics and chemistry and biology and mathematics and astronomy and, and the human body and all that. God has called us to that. He's called us to that. But he also says in verse number 15 that we are to keep it. This means to protect it. To protect it. We're to be stewards of what God has made. So this is where appropriate environmentalism comes from. Here it is. Even though I jokingly said pigs and cows are fun to eat, and they are, it would be wrong for us to, uh, to abuse an animal just for the fun of it or to, to do something wicked. That's wrong. That's a sick, twisted mind that does that kind of thing. That's not what this is for. God calls for us to protect the earth and to serve and to work. These things are not, these things are not the result of sin. Work is not sin. Working with the land, protecting it, not sin. Okay? All right, then in verse number 16, we now have a special revelation. Now, revelation means that God's going to reveal a truth. Okay? Now, let's just see it quickly. The Lord God commanded, first time this is used, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely eat. Die. God gives man law. He gives man law. Now, wait a minute. I thought law was bad. I thought rules were bad. I don't like rules. Rules make me mad. I like to rebel against rules. Yeah, that's called sin, okay? And we, aren't, we, aren't, we don't have sin yet. God establishes a law. He says, don't eat from this tree. Now, why? Why? I mean, I, I, don't, I can't speak for God. I can't, I can't tell us what the mind of God is. But I can give you a, an idea from the counsel of Scripture. In this law, man has an opportunity now. 
Man has an opportunity to show his loyalty, to show his love. Now man's innocence can be tested. Do you love me? Remember Jesus said that to Peter? Do you truly love me? Do you love me? God is saying the same thing to Adam now. There's an opportunity here. He says that the day you eat it, you shall surely die. Now, here's the reality. Adam lives, after he eats, he, eat, he lives for hundreds of years. So you might say, well, wait a minute. What's that mean? The day that Adam sinned, he did die. He died. We're going to see it in two weeks. He'll be separated from God and our hearts break because of sin. He's spiritually separated from God, needing, needing atonement, needing redemption. Secondly, his body instantly begins to decay towards death. It wasn't God's original plan. But God will establish this as a great plan. But this does occur. This, he instantly begins to die. But this hasn't happened yet. Not yet. So let's just review what we got. We got with this, this special creation. God has prepared this, this place for Adam. He gave him this mission to serve and to cultivate and, and protect the land. He reveals for him some truth. But then in verse 18, there's something very important. And I think this is most applicable to us today. Let me read it. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now what we have here is a limitation that man has. Now who made, who made man? God. Whose image did God make man? His own. God is Yahweh. The relational God. And when the Lord formed us, He made us with a limitation. You might say, a need. And this is a need for relationship. Now, let's just deal with this. I know, I know that many of us, we balk against this. We think we don't really need relationship. But I want you to see the effort, the effort that God goes through to demonstrate to Adam, the perfect man, in the perfect environment, there is no sin. He has everything that he needs. God has been beyond generous. And God is going to go to great effort to show him, you need relationship. Watch what he does. Now God allows all these animals to now be, you know, sort of paraded in front of Adam. They're brought before Adam. And not only are they paraded in front of him, but now God says, I don't want you just to look at them. I want you to investigate them. And I want you to name them. And so now these animals now come before Adam. Okay? They come before Adam, and Adam is now given the task of looking at them and saying, well, let's see. It makes a weird noise that sounds like this. Rough. So we'll call it a dog. I don't know how it worked, okay? But he had to look at these animals and investigate them and give them a name. But you need to see why God is doing this. Look at verse 18. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. 
now. So, what this means is, in God's logical thinking, because I'm going to make him see that he needs a helper, now God has him name the animals. See, this is an object lesson. God's not having Adam name the animals because he wants him to write an encyclopedia. That's not what this is. He's trying to teach him a lesson. And here's his main point. I will make him see that there is not a helper fit for him. There's not a helper fit for him. What this means is there's not a helper that corresponds to him. Now I know, and we've already referenced this, I know you enjoy your time with the cats, or your parakeet, or your hamster, or whatever it might be. But this is not, this is not what God intended to be the limit of our relationship. God intends for us to relate. To relate. This is before sin. You don't need other people because of sin. We need other people because we're made in the image of God. The man gave names, verse 20, to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the earth, every best of the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. No suitable helper. No corresponding person. Immediately he notices, I believe, I mean the first thing that's obvious is, all the other animals, there was a male and female, and there's just him. Okay, that's a problem. Okay, I think he notices that. But I think he notices the lack of relationship that he can have with these animals. And so, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up his place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the woman, from the man that is, he made it to a woman and brought her to the man. And there's a special provision that we'll talk about next week. But, but I just want to hit a couple things here that, that it's important for us to recognize. Number one is this. I want you to see the Lord's attention and care for mankind. God provided generously. In our worldview, we must understand that all the, the struggle and the catastrophe and the hurt and the pain that we see in this world is not here yet in Genesis 2. It's not here. That's the result of sin. We must see that. Secondly, and I think this is most important from, on my heart today, we must realize that the image of the Lord God includes two things that are very important. A need for and an ability to provide fellowship. Yes, you do need fellowship. Yes, you do. Don't try to tell me that you don't. Now, I will accept, possibly, that you've been hurt in the past by fellowship. I will accept that. I will accept that you've been burnt before. I will accept that people have let you down. I will accept that your parents were mean to you, that your brothers and sisters are jerks, that people have abandoned you, that that church you went to was mean, that your small group turned on you, that your best friend abandoned you, that your spouse... I'll accept all that. But we cannot accept. It is not an option that we don't need relationship. 
You were made in the image of God. God needed relationship. He had it in the Trinity, and he needed that. He made man that relationship with him. And secondly, you were made to provide it. So at the very least, at the very least, we come to the table of relationship because I can provide it for you. We let this sink in. And will you respond to the image of God that's stamped on you? I hurt for some people. I hurt for some people. I don't hurt for them because I don't have friends. That's not what it is. I hurt for them because they will not allow themselves to have relationship. They won't allow themselves. And as soon as they get close, as soon as somebody pulls close, boom. You've had this done to you? They keep people away. Can I just tell you that when you are doing this, you are rebelling. You are rebelling against the image of God. See, we think rebelling is this horrible, you know, denial of God. But I'm saying it's rebelling against the image of God because we need relationship.